Hello there, Pastor Tom and the church family in Nairobi, Kenya. It's good to be with you again, coming to you from Cookville, Tennessee. If you don't know who I am, my name is Chris McMichael. I pastor in Cookville, Tennessee, and we're honored to be able to bring you another message through video recording. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into a message about the mark of maturity in the believer. So let me pray for us this morning. Father, I do thank you so much for the saints of God assembled together in Nairobi, Kenya. I thank you for Pastor Tom and Miss Anna, the leadership provided there at their church. I thank you for the plan of God you have for their church family. I thank you, Father, for the moving of your Holy Spirit. Anoint them and grace Pastor Tom and the whole team to minister to the saints, to preach the gospel, build the kingdom, make disciples, win the lost, feed the orphans, and glorify you. I ask you, Father, to anoint me to minister to this congregation and anoint them to receive with meekness the word of God sown into their lives today. I ask these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about the mark of maturity for about the next hour. I'm excited to talk about this. It's a challenge for me uh, to be able to teach different messages from different angles. Uh, Pastor Tom has asked me to minister on a few subjects, and I'm more than honored to do that because when I get an assignment and I have a friend uh, in the ministry call and say, Pastor Chris, you're a teacher. Could you send us some teaching on this subject? Could you send us some teaching on that subject? That activates the gift of God on my life. And so I, I enjoy the challenge and the request to bring some teaching. I want you as a church to know that we're going to show this video in my own church to help my own church grow up. And so we're going to talk about the mark of maturity, the mark of maturity in the believer. And there's a lot of different ways we could teach this message. We could maybe go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and talk about what it is to be part of the body. We could go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at the fruit of the Spirit because those are certainly mature attitudes, love, joy, peace. Those are attitudes of mature believers. Self-control, that's the attitude of a mature believer. Gentleness, kindness, those are attitudes of mature people. We could, we could teach that. We could certainly go to 1 Timothy 3 and look at the criteria to be an elder or bishop or Titus chapter 1 and look at the same list of criteria to be an elder or a bishop. And certainly, maybe we could mix all of those points together and come up with this giant list of what maturity looks like. But that might be a little bit more of a teaching than one hour would afford. So what I want to do with our time is look at some general lifestyles that require a combination of all those points. And if we can look at a lifestyle we might be able to catch the heart. When 1 Timothy 3 gives you 17 criteria to be an elder, it's trying to paint a picture of what maturity looks like. And so what I've hoped to do here is look at this request. Pastor, what is it? What's the mark of maturity in a believer? And so as a pastor, I've looked at my church and I've looked to see what mature people in my church do and how they're defined. And so I want to share those points with you also full well knowing my church will view this message in an upcoming Sunday night service. So 
Let's just jump in here. I've got five points, five marks of maturity. And this list isn't all conclusive, but this might help you judge yourself where you're at. Probably what's going to be surprising to you is on this list is not having an intimate knowledge of the Scripture and being able to quote every verse of the New Testament. I don't include knowledge of Scripture as a mark of maturity because that would require you to have access to a Bible to be mature. I don't believe the saints of God in Afghanistan or China have access to a Bible, but I believe there's some very mature saints in those underground churches. Also, just because you know the Bible doesn't mean you live it. Just because you know the Bible doesn't mean you're born again. And so simply knowing Scripture and being able to quote it doesn't mean there's a mark of maturity on your life. Sometimes knowledge is deceptive and you can think that just because you know something, you're automatically doing it. And that's hardly ever the case. There are certainly pagans who mock God, but they have degrees in theology and they know our Bible and even our doctrine better than we do, but it doesn't change their life and you'd never count them as a mature believer. So for that reason, we cannot include knowledge of Scripture as a mark of maturity, though studying the Bible will help you to grow. Simply knowing the Scripture is not a mark of maturity. We might also note that there's no point on my list here that involves the gifts of the Spirit or speaking in other tongues. And though I do endorse speaking in other tongues, we are a Pentecostal church. I would say probably 98% of my church prays in other tongues. The 2% is either the new adult or a couple of our children who haven't been Spirit-filled yet. I don't believe speaking in other tongues, praying in the Spirit, is the mark of maturity. I say this because my church is Spirit-filled, and like I said, 98% of our families or individuals pray in tongues, but they're not all mature. <laughs> Sometimes the non-tongue talker is way more mature than the Spirit-filled saint, and that's not a good testimony. I also don't include on my list being used in the gifts of the Spirit. And being used in the gifts of the Spirit is not a mark of maturity simply because we know most of what we know about the gifts of the Spirit from 1 Corinthians. And the book of 1 Corinthians, the epistle, has more rebukes in it than any other epistle except 2 Corinthians because the Corinthian church was not a mature church. It was a carnal church. They were carnal, and yet they had the gifts of the Spirit. And so the gifts of the Spirit are not a mark of maturity. I also like to often reference Balaam's donkey. Balaam's donkey was used in the gifts of the Spirit. Balaam's donkey was not a Jew. Balaam's donkey was not even a human. Hopefully you knew that. Hopefully you know that Balaam's donkey was not a human being. And yet that donkey, as the prophet rode upon his back on the way to get the gain of prophecy, the reward of prophecy, which was all a sin for Balaam, that donkey, his eyes were opened and he saw an angel. And that's a gift of the Spirit. It's called discerning of spirits. And yet discerning of spirits did not make that donkey a mature believer. Multiple times he saw that angel. 
And the angel would stand on this side, and the angel would stand on that side, and the angel stood in the way with the sword. And the donkey finally just sat down and submitted. That might be a mark of maturity, but it didn't make him a mature believer. And then the donkey began to speak in the tongue of Balaam. That's the gift of tongues. So we have a donkey now operating in the gift of tongues, but that did not make the donkey a mature believer. And that donkey began to prophesy and speak the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom, which are three other gifts of the Spirit. And so, I, by my humble estimation, that donkey was used in three or four gifts of the Spirit, all within about ten minutes of time. But those did not make that donkey mature, nor was it a mark of maturity, because he wasn't a human. So sometimes in Pentecostal circles, we get in pride because we're, we know the Bible, and I know the Scripture, and God is talking to me, and I've been used in the gifts. All right, great, so what? None of it's a mark of maturity. Maybe God talks to you a lot because you're very stubborn and he has to keep reminding you of the same thing he's been reminding you of for 15 years. So what I have are general observations that are the indelible mark of maturity on the saints of God. And when I look at this list here that I'm going to begin here in a moment, I think about the great men and women of God that I aspire to be like, that I look up to, and I see all of these gifts, all of these marks in their life. And though they might have the gifts, though they not, might know Scripture, though they might be used um, in the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, maybe they've been to heaven, maybe they've been to hell. These are the traits that define them. I'm also mindful of this. Uh, I, I share this story with my church a lot. Uh, my father in the faith, Pastor Okwokwo from Nigeria, one of the most powerful things he ever told me, I asked him, I said, Pastor Stephen, what's the greatest thing you've ever seen God do? And he said, the greatest thing I've ever seen God do, he said, it must be it is when God can change a man's life. He said, that's the greatest miracle I've ever seen. And that answer offended me because it wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for miracles, angelic visitations, blind eyes opening, raising people from the dead. Here was this Nigerian apostle. I wanted to see signs and wonders. So I asked this great man of God, our first real conversation in person, and his answer was, the greatest miracle I've ever seen is when God can change a man's life. And so it, it bothered me. And then without much of a pause, he continued in his statement. And he said, because brother, I must say, how many has God by my hands raised from the dead? And he said, countless. I counted 14. As I got to know Pastor Okwokwo and sat down and documented all of his stories, he had raised some people, uh, people from the dead at least 14 times. And then our last real conversation, he remembered another lady he had forgotten. He raised her from the dead twice in the same church service. And so the third time she died again in the same church service and he left her dead. He said, so I don't count her at all. 
because uh, she died a third time and we left her dead. And I told him, I said, Pastor Okoko, I count her as two because if I raised her from the dead twice, she's two for my, my tab. He said, I don't count her at all. He said, how many has God by my hand raised from the dead? He said, countless. He said, but you must understand this man, brother. He always called me brother. You can raise someone from the dead and they still die and go to hell. And that was a profound statement that greatly humbled me. And I realized the kingdom's economy doesn't run on the currency I was expecting or that I had anticipated. So when I think about these marks of maturity, they are not spectacular. They are not wild. They are not charismatic. What they are are proven. What they are are guaranteed to get you to heaven's gate. What they are proven is to help others around you. And they are guaranteed to make you an epistle worth following. So I think that's what we're looking for. What's the mark of maturity in a Christian's life that would allow us to say that Christian right there, you follow that person, you're going to make heaven. You follow that person, you're going to glorify God. So here we go. Five marks of maturity as I judge the body of Christ and raise up disciples. In no particular order, number one, one mark of maturity is a desire to fellowship with God's people. Fellowshipping with the saints. That is a mark of maturity. Now you might ask, why is that a mark of maturity? Well, as I pastor, I have had folks in my church who have fancied themselves spiritual and they want to pull me aside. This still happens even as recently as the last week or two. They want to pull me aside after a service and they are under this delusion that they and I are equal. And therefore, they, they kind of talk to me kind of buddy-buddy. Like, you know, Pastor, all these people here are fearful. You know, Pastor, all these people here, they've got issues. You know, Pastor, all these people here, I mean, they're, they're, they, they don't know God. <laughs> and when they say this, because it's been happening to me for years, men and women alike, old and young, the one thing I've begun to note with all of them is that the one thing those people have in common is they have no fellowship with the rest of the body. So we have a couple things at work in that individual. Number one, there's a delusion, a delusion that tells them they're better than the rest of the, of the flock, the rest of the body. Number two, you have pride. That pride has led them to believe that they're better and therefore they don't need to fellowship with the rest of the body. And then the other delusion or the prideful deception is they're equal to the pastor who happens to know the whole flock from my perspective and not from the perspective of an immature delusional sheep. So one of the real marks of maturity is not the ability to cast out devils. It's not the ability to be able to lay hands on somebody and have a word of knowledge for them. It's not the ability to know scripture and be able to exegete or erroneously eisegete or teach a textual sermon. The real mark of maturity is you love God's people so much, you see that they are your family and you can't wait to be back with the flock of God again because those are my people. 
That's a real mark of maturity. Furthermore, we got scripture for it. So let's look at Hebrews real quick. I got a couple verses for each of my points. We can't stay too long on any given point. Hebrews 10.25 or 10.24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Uh, to be mature, you've got to be considerate of one another. You consider the people in your local church. And to obey this verse, you don't just consider one another. You're thinking about them and how you might provoke them unto love. So it's not a wicked provocation. It's not a wicked provoking to anger or provoking to insecurity, but a provocation unto love and to good works. And so what this looks like is it's like an army of God, and we're encouraging each other. We can do it. Hold the line. Get ready to attack the enemy. God won't leave us. God won't forsake us. Where were you Sunday? Where were you Wednesday? Where were you at the prayer meeting? That's provocation. But the delusional, immature Christian doesn't want to fellowship with everybody else, and they have their insecure excuses. Well, I don't have anything in common. Well, that's your fault, not the people's fault. How come everybody else likes to fellowship but you? Everybody else loves the company of one another but you. So I don't think they're the problem. I think you're the problem. But when you're mature, you can find something in common with anybody who's blood-bought and born again and loves Jesus Christ. When you're mature, you can find something in common and you don't have to be spiritual to fellowship with them. I need to make a distinction between spiritual and mature. Witches and witch doctors are spiritual. Christians are to be mature. Immature Christians can be spiritual, but it might be a familiar spirit. It might be a demon spirit. It might be juju. We want Christians to aim for maturity. And so even though it doesn't appear to be a spiritual mark of maturity, fellowshipping with the saints is a mark of maturity because you're mature enough to put aside your differences and to extend your love and open your life to the body of Christ of whom you're called to live life together with. Verse 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. So mature people fellowship because it allows us to provoke unto love and to good works. It allows us to exhort one another. It allows us to assemble together. It's possible to come to church and never assemble with the body. I'm sure you understand what a wart is. You know, a wart on someone's hand, a wart on someone's elbow or skin, a wart a wart is technically part of the skin. It's part of the body. And yet it has this l layer of skin that keeps it isolated from the rest of the body. And every local church has a few warts. I hope you're understanding that word. Watts. I'm trying to throw the African accent on it. Warts. Every assembly has a few warts. Yes, they'll come and assemble. Yes, they'll sit here or sit there or sit there. But they don't ever share their life. And so they come and they're isolated. They come and there's a barricade around them. And so when God runs his hand over the skin of his body, he feels that wart. 
It's ugly. It's crusty. It doesn't look like the rest of the body. And truly, the wart thinks they're better than everybody else because if they thought they were equal to everybody else, then they would blend in and share their life. So assembling, considering, and provoking, there's three verbs in two verses. That's what we do as mature Christians. We consider, we provoke, we assemble. It's an act of maturity. It's a mark of maturity. I've been honored to get to travel the world quite a bit for Jesus. Mexico, that's North America, but nearly down into Central America. I've been to Chile, the bottom of the world at the Straits of Magellan and a little town called Punta Arenas and Patagonia. I've been to the top of the world in Iceland. I've been to Europe and Africa. Never been to anywhere in Asia or Australia. But one of the things I find wonderful about the body of Christ, even on airplanes and in airports, you find someone who's a believer and there's this instant bonding. And you don't care in that moment if they're Episcopal or Catholic. You don't care in that moment if they're Baptist or Pentecostal, non-denominational. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, you're one body and there's a bonding there. You've run into a fellow member of the body of Christ and you briefly, whether it be on an airplane or at a, at a lounge in an airport waiting for your airplane, you begin to talk about the things of God and how you fellowship and who's your pastor and where do you go to church and what's God doing in your ministry. That's a mark of maturity. Look at 1 Corinthians real quick, chapter 12, because then we have to move on to the next mark of maturity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 says, The eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The mark of maturity says we need each other. The mark of maturity isn't the eyes saying, I'm better than the ears. All these people around here are just ears. Boy, I wish they could see like I could see. Boy, I wish they could see like I could see. Because then what's going to happen is the ear is going to look at the eyes and says, boy, all these people around here, they're just eyes. I wish they could hear what I could hear, but they can't hear. I'm better than them because I'm ears. And then you got the feet saying, those eyes and those ears, they couldn't go nowhere without me. I wish they could travel like me. I wish they could walk like me. Maturity says, thank God for eyes. Thank God for ears. Thank God for elbows. Thank God for feet, knees, hips, elbows, guts, jaw, mouth, tongue, neck. Maturity says, I'm glad we're a body. And I'm glad everybody's here. That's the mark of maturity. If you don't like fellowshipping with the local body, you are not a mature saint. If you don't like opening your home to the saints of God, you're not a mature saint. If you are always finding something wrong with the local body, you are not a mature saint. Because fellowshipping with the saints is a mark of maturity. If you're born again, the born again ones are your people and you're of like precious faith. And so this is the bulk of who you fellowship with. Number two. The number two mark of maturity, in no particular order, 
is the joy of the Lord. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 for this one. I have a few verses, Mark, but we may just look at one. The joy of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1. You may ask, well, why is that a mark of maturity? I laugh at movies. I'm not talking about laughing at movies. I'm not talking about having a sense of humor that you laugh at jokes. The joy of the Lord is a joy that sustains you through hell and heartache and hardship. There's a joy that comes up out of your innermost being so that when you really walk with God, people can tell on your face. Now, I'm not talking about having a knowledge of Scripture. I'm not talking about being a prophet. I'm talking about actually walking with God. All the people who I esteem highly in the gospel have a joy about them. There's a gentle peace and a joy. There, that joy makes people easily approachable, easy to be entreated. There's not a scowl on their face. People who live under a permanent scowl or sorrow, they are very cerebral and they're typically always frowning because their mind is always trying to troubleshoot their problems. No, 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 Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Notice the contrast. You rejoice, but you're in heaviness. So joy is not about a joke or a sense of humor. Joy is what comes out of you when you're in heaviness. Now, that's an oxymoron. That's a tension. It doesn't make sense that Peter says, you're under tremendous heaviness, but you are full of rejoicing. Why? It's a mark of maturity. The mark of maturity is you're full of so much joy, people can't tell when you're under attack because the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's Nehemiah chapter 8. The joy of the Lord sustains you. And Peter says the same thing. The uh, you greatly rejoice. Well, what does greatly rejoicing look like? Does it look like you're at your mother's funeral? And she's passed away and you're sad. Does this look like great rejoicing? No, no. That looks like you need to be born again. Or if you are born again, you need to notify your face that there was supposed to be some kind of eternal transformation that took place in your inner parts upon the reception of Jesus Christ as Savior. He said, You greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through multiple, multifaceted temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy 
unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your, uh, end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, the salvation of your souls is not a reference to eternal salvation. Eternal salvation takes place in your spirit, man. The salvation of your soul, that's James chapter 1, the word of God which is able to save your soul. The salvation of your souls refers to the renewing of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Isn't it interesting that this is all tied to having joy and greatly rejoicing no matter how heavy and how hot the trials and tribulations of your faith are. So I count joy, permanent joy. You might wobble a little bit when a new attack comes out of nowhere, but it's, then you, you gain your stability and then you're back to joy. Real joy is evident in your countenance. Real joy draws people to you. Real joy does not part the sea of humanity trying to get out of your scowl or your ugly face. Real joy draws people to you. Real joy doesn't cause people to avoid you. Real joy draws people to you. And having this perpetual joy, this is another mark of maturity. It takes a mature believer to smile, to rejoice, to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, tests, and trials. It takes maturity. Immature people fall apart. Immature people fall into complaining and whining, and why God? Why God? Why God? It's not fair, God. How come you're not answering God? Why God? That's not a mark of maturity. It's a mark of immaturity. So that's why we count it as a mark of maturity. Number two, excuse me, number three, our third marker for maturity is, I'm going to call it generosity. Generosity is a mark of maturity. That could be generosity with time, generosity with service, Christian service, generosity with your money. Mature Christians are generous. Why? Because freely they've received, and so freely they want to give. Freely God's given them time, and so freely they want to give it back. Freely God has given them money, and so freely they want to give it back. Freely God has given them prayer, uh, the prayers of the saints to help them, so freely they want to give prayers back. So mature Christians are generous, not just with finances, but with everything in their life. They're generous with their home. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their gifts, their abilities. God had given them everything with which they're enjoying life, and so they must then, because of the maturity and their thankfulness, they want to give back with what God has given them. You can't give what you don't have. We're all called to give something, so mature Christians give back what they've got. They give of everything God has bestowed upon them. So one of my verses for this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul talking about the generosity of the Macedonian believers. He says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how then in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy. Oh, they had joy too. I guess their joy was tied to their generosity. The great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, and the deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record. Yes, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves 
praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellow ministering, a fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now, there's a little bit of a progression and advancement in this mark of maturity. And verse 5 is the key. It says, in this they did. They gave money to help the other churches. But this they did first. They first gave their own selves to the Lord. So they were generous in what they did with their lives before God. They said, God, I give you everything I am, everything I have, all my time, all my talent, all my finances. It's all yours. And then they learned to give themselves unto the apostles, Paul being their father of the faith, the apostle, according to the will of God, they gave themselves over to the apostle. Now, I think Paul added by the will of God so as to exclude any inappropriate submission, any inappropriate behavior. We understand that sometimes leaders can abuse their authority. So Paul throws that in there. They gave themselves unto us by the will of God. So it was an appropriate, submissive relationship. But because they had given themselves to God first and then given themselves and entrusted their lives to those who had the rule over them in the Lord, they were then able to freely give anything else they had to help the other churches. It's a mark of maturity. We should have it about our lives. Stingy Christians are not mature. Christians who won't share their time are not mature. Christians who won't serve in the house of God are not mature. Christians who won't finance the gospel with whatever they have are not mature. Generous Christians show the work of maturity in their life. And truly, the older you get, the more mature you get in Christ, the more you give. The more you give of your time, the more you give of your home, the more you give of your finances, the more you give of your ability. The more mature you get, the more you give. The less mature you are, the less you give. So that might be something worth measuring right now as we teach this. How much do you share your life with the kingdom? How much do you give? Or do you simply, do you simply come to church to take, 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 take? Now, I think I've said this too before. I think I taught you this church when I was with you there in Nairobi. I think one of my favorite Swahili words is doo-doo. And you know what doo-doo means. It's the parasite that hangs on the back of the kiboko. And all it does is suck the blood out of the kiboko. And when it's done sucking blood, it crawls away because all it does is take, 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 take. It doesn't give anything. And many Christians sit in our churches and they are doo-doo. They're the parasite. They're not mature. And when they get offended, like many parasites, they inject poison before they crawl away. They suck life and they leave poison. They don't even say thank you for the free ride Mr. Kiboko. They, they don't even say thank you for feeding me. All they do is inject venom and poison and then crawl away and disappear into the night. That is not a mature Christian. It really might be a wolf 
It might be a heretic. It might be a Judas. Every church, Pastor Tom, hear this. My pastor teaches me there's always a Judas in the training. There's always a Judas in your church somewhere. The demons don't leave our congregations alone, Pastor Tom. The demons are always walking the boundary, always walking the perimeter, looking for whom they may entice to raise up the next Judas. And just when you and I put the Judas out or confront the Judas and the old Judas repents, the new Judas is being ministered to by the familiar spirit. And so church family, your job is then to judge yourself as the apostles did the night of the Lord's betrayal and say, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Am I the next Judas? And then make sure it's not you. Ask the Lord for mercy and ask the Lord that he would help you stay faithful to Jesus Christ and not betray your church or your church family. So our third mark of maturity is generosity. Parasites, doo-doo, are not mature. They are selfish. Don't be that. If that's you, just repent. Maybe, Pastor Tom, when we close this service out here with my video portion, you can give an altar call for the parasites of your church because I know you have some. Every church does. I have them. They don't ever give. They just take, 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 take. Have them come forward that God perhaps would give them space to repent, that they would not be overtaken with the Judas spirit and curse themselves and go to hell. These are serious times we live in, and every church is being plagued with parasites. All right, maybe you do that, Pastor Tom, and open up the altars for the guilty to come and repent and make it right with their God. My fourth mark of maturity. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. My fourth mark of maturity in a believer is this steadfast resistance to bitterness. The fourth mark of maturity is a steadfast ability to resist bitterness. We would also add offense. Mature Christians are very resistant to being offended. Sermons don't offend them. The pastor doesn't offend them. There might be a temptation to be offended, but the mature saint can feel it. He can feel, she can feel when the enemy is tempting them with offense. Some Christians never pass this test. Some Christians never move beyond the, what I call it, the offense test. There's a lot of tests in life we have to pass. We have to pass the mammon test where we learn to trust God with money and not our boss. But offense is another test you have to pass. If you can't ever learn to beat offense, drop charges and forgive, then anytime you start to prosper in life, the enemy will see it and he will send a fiery dart to offend you. As I'm thinking about it, every pastor is going to offend people. Not that we aim to. Think about how, Pastor Tom, think about how much we could offend people if we tried to. If that was our ambition, as easily as people are offended now, what if we actually aimed to offend them? So I was, I was talking, I think this week or last week, with my staff here at our church. And uh, we have banners. I think you've seen them at our church, Pastor Tom. We have a lot, we're a storefront church in the old part of our city. 
So we have a lot of glass display because it used to be an old store. So one of the things we've developed over the years are banners that we hang in the windows so that the people outside can see something pretty to look at. We have four sets of banners that we rotate in seasonally. So at Christmas time, we have Christmas banners. And by banners, I mean these giant hangings. And the Christmas banners have the nativity story and the birth of Christ. At Easter, we have Easter banners. So we talk about the resurrection, the betrayal, the suffering of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And they hang in our windows here. Then we have uh, banners that promote our local city. And we kind of call those the regional banners. They promote our university. They promote our city. They promote our waterfalls. They promote our, our, our community. So those are for the public. And then our fourth set are patriotic banners. And so what we kind of have is a mural, uh, a set of banners that portray the history of the United States of America from our founding fathers through the wars we fought and what makes our nation great. And they're all very tastefully done. They all have scripture, except for the community banners, which is just promoting local landmarks. I have had two reports in the last two weeks from our church members talking to non-church members who walked down our street. <laughs> and these two reports said, yeah, I, I, I know your church. I was just walking past your church. You guys have those banners. Those banners are offensive. And so both reports said, really? Um, well, what, what was offensive about it? And neither of the offended people could explain what was so offensive about our banners. Now, I can tell you our banners are not offensive. Now, the gospel is offensive, so maybe seeing the Jesus nativity story, that might offend somebody. And, and maybe the crucifixion is offensive, so maybe that offends you. But this is religious. It's a church. I don't see how anybody could be offended at the community banners because there's the city courthouse, there's our university, there's a local waterfall, there's a local uh, ice cream shop picture, there's a local barn. Nothing offensive. Maybe the patriotic ones, if you don't like our founding fathers, but then again, everybody's immigrating to our nation to get in on what our founding fathers built 246 years ago. So it kind of led me and my secretary made mention of it. She said, Pastor, what if, what if that same spirit that offends our congregation when you're preaching, what if in between services it stands outside the church and gives people something else to be offended about? And I thought that sounds pretty scientific to me because I know that I can preach something and people in my church don't hear what I preach. They hear something I did not say and they walk away offended. I wish they were mature enough to recognize when it's a spirit and not the Holy Spirit. But listen to me very carefully, church, Pastor Tom's church. If you cannot distinguish between a spirit bringing offense and the Holy Spirit, you are not mature at all. One of the signs of maturity is that we know the voice of our shepherd and the voice of a stranger who tries to talk to us, we don't listen to. And you need to know very clearly that the voice of offense, if you listen to it and you believe it and you go with it, you are not as mature as you think you are. Because one of the 
paramount marks of maturity is a steadfast resistance to offense and bitterness. And so it does. It's a curious observation that I know people get offended at me when I preach because they're immature. But the fact that we have random people walking by our banners and they're offended, but they can't explain what they're offended at. They just know they saw something offensive. But they can't remember what it is. But they're still so mad about it, they're talking to a church member. Yeah, your church has those banners I find offensive. You got to be really offended to bring up to a friend to kind of run their church down to them. What kind of moron insults a friend's church? Someone who's under the guise and the spirit of offense. So here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. So when you get offended, you're failing the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. So there's that root of bitterness. When you get offended, that's the first step. Bitterness is the second step. Offense is like the seed that is sown. And if you don't resolve the seed of offense, it will produce bitter roots that will spring up and trouble many, defile many. If you get offended at your pastor, you'll end up sowing that bitterness into your family. If you end up getting offended at your boss, you will sow offense to your coworkers. Bitterness cannot contain itself. Bitterness has to burp up. Bitterness has to make snide remarks. Bitterness is a horrible way to live, and it is the mark of immaturity. It is not the mark of maturity. Mature people deal with bitterness. Mature people deal with offense. Mature people can tell when they're getting offended, and they tell it to shut up. They, they keep uh, their hand on that offense and that bitterness, and they keep praying about it till it's gone. Now, if, if you didn't know, I'll teach you real quick how you beat offense. You pray for the person you were offended by. I, I'm not going to say the person that offended you. That's, <laughs> I'm mad at them. They offended me. Even that expression shifts responsibility off of you and onto them. I'm just so mad at pastor. He offended me. Let me teach you how to be mature with that. I'm just so ashamed of myself, I got offended at my pastor. How about we change the verbiage, change how we express it, change how we view it so we can get help. But if I'm always blaming Bob or Chuck or Larry for offending me, Larry just, he offended me. No, 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 you got offended. He didn't offend you. Everybody else was laughing but you. Do you see how even with our confession, we are shifting responsibility. I'm just so mad at Pastor Tom. He offended me. He did not offend you. You got offended. He preached the gospel. He confronted your sin. He preached a hard message. He, he stomped on your insubordination and rebellion against your God. And you took offense. He did not give offense. He gave you gospel. You converted gospel to offense. He preached the word. You converted it into something wicked and damnable. So let's be careful how we start wording things when we act like grade school children. He just offended me. He did not offend you. He gave you the scripture and you and your rebellion and your screwy brain, you converted it to offense. You're not going to get help always blaming the pastor. 
Amen. All right, it feels like pretty good preaching to me. I'm not really sure who that's for. If that's for Cookville or for Nairobi, maybe it's for everybody. I'm feeling pretty good about it, though. <laughs> Look diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Then we can go to this one scripture. Just write it down for time's sake. Psalm 119, 165, one of my favorite verses, quoted a lot in my own church. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing, that means nothing, nothing shall offend them. Great peace have they which love thy law. Great peace have they which love the word of God, and nothing shall offend them. So when you and I love the word of God, we don't have to know it all. We just have to love what we know. Loving the word of God stabilizes our soul and keeps us from being offended. Something my wife says from time to time, she says, I love truth because truth is not prejudice. Truth is just truth. Truth doesn't care whether you're black or white or rich or poor or wicked or righteous. Truth is truth. And if you love truth, you won't be offended by it. But when you hate truth, you'll always find a reason to discredit it and you'll call it, I'm offended. If you live in offense, please understand you are not a mature believer. We're talking about the mark of maturity. I want to say what I said a couple minutes ago again. Your pastor did not give you offense. Your pastor gave you the gospel. The gospel maybe included correction. We'll say your pastor gave you gospel love. He gave you doctrinal correction. But what you received was not the gospel or correction or love. What you chose to receive was offense. You, you looked through what he gave you and you found a reason to be angry. But it's because you were already angry and miserable to begin with. He intended to give you help. He intended to give you love. He intended to give you correction. He intended to give you truth. And somehow, because of the rebellion or the familiar spirit involved in your life, you were able to take what he intended to give you and manipulate it and pervert it and make yourself the victim of something he never did. That's delusional. It is not the mark of maturity. And probably at that level of offense, you probably have a familiar spirit at work. And I, I just accept the fact that I do have familiar spirits that visit my church family and manipulate what I say so they never hear what I say, even though we make a recording of every service and they just don't hear it. <laughs> they just don't hear what I say. What's a man to do? But I also take solace in knowing probably the most misquoted, misunderstood misapplied preacher in human history is Jesus Christ of Nazareth and his words are actually written down and they're still taken and abused and maligned and misinterpreted. So if they're going to misquote the Lord Jesus Christ when they can read what he said, I don't feel so bad when they misquote me, a mere mortal. All right. Last mark of maturity. This one I call a home life that demonstrates the kingdom. One of the real marks of maturity, it's not how you look in the house of God. It's not how you dress for Sunday morning. It's not how you worship or, or sing God's praises or how you prophesy or serve in the Sunday school or lead worship. 
The real mark of maturity is what you've done with the kingdom at home. Have you sown the gospel seed at home? Pastor Tom, I think you'd agree. Our Christians, our saints, have a church face, and then they have a home reality. Our saints, I call it the church face, the church persona. Everybody has a church persona, a church facade. The real mark of maturity is when your home life is just like your church life, and your church life is just like your home life. It's real easy to act spiritual in the house of God, but are you mature at home? Do your children see you worship the Lord? Do your children see you study the Bible at home? Do your children know that you worship God? Or do your children see the carnal, sinful, emotional, unstable, gossiping, lazy side? The real mark of maturity is what people see in your home. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's real easy to fake Pentecost in the house of God. It's real easy to put on fancy church clothing and it's nothing more than a whited sepulcher. It's real easy to clean the outside of the pot, but the inside is full of avarice and carnality and excess and greed. It's real easy to sing real pretty on the platform and then use the same voice to scream and yell at your husband at home. I wonder if you could be as sweet to your husband as you are to your Savior because both of them are king or leader over your house. Jesus over the house of God and your husband over your home. I'm not deluded. I'm sure there's been plenty of female worship leader who has a beautiful voice who leads the house of God in worship and then she goes home and screams and yells at her husband. These things ought not so be. <laughs> Here in the States, we have this expression, when someone uses a lot of vulgarity, a lot of filthy communication, someone might ask them, hey, ugh, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? <laughs> As if to say, that mouth is so filthy, would you dare now turn and kiss your mother on her cheek with that? And I, I wonder if we, could, if we could record some of the worship leaders at home and how they talk to their spouse, typically women, and then play it for the church family right before they led the church family in worship. Do you think the church family would follow them in worship? I don't think so. 1 Timothy 4, 12. Let no man despise your youth, young Timothy, but be thou an example. This is our job. This is the mark of maturity. Be an example of the believer. Not be an example to the believer. That can be turned on or off. But if you're an example of the believer, you're always an example because you're always a believer. If you're only an example to the believer, then when you're while, while you're around believers, you act one way, and when you're around pagans, you act another way. But when you're an example of the believer, because you're a believer, everywhere you go, you act like a believer. That means even at home around your wife and children. 
Be thou an example of the believer in your word, in conversation, that is lifestyle, in love, in attitude, in faith, in purity. So what if we apply that at home? Be thou an example of the believer at home. How you talk at home, how you live at home, how you love at home, how your attitude is at home, how faithful you are at home. Some Christians only have faith when they come to the house of God and when they go home, they don't activate their faith or open their Bible all week. The mark of maturity, and I can tell this service has come out a little strong, but the request from Pastor Tom was, I I need a message on the mark of maturity. If we're going to talk about growing up, well then, baby, grow up. We're living in the last days. We don't need carnal Christianity. If we're going to be a mature believer, that maturity begins at home, not the house of God. But this might be another good altar call. Come down to the front. I'm just kind of giving the example here. If you can tell, you have two different lifestyles, your church lifestyle and your home lifestyle, because that's hypocritical, that's two-faced, that's a double-minded person, and that needs to be repented of. So if I were to summarize these five points, what is the mark of maturity? Well, the fruit of all this is a selfless servant who lives for God's people. A mature believer is a selfless servant who lives for God's people. That might be a good summary of it. So let's review these five points real quick. Number one, no particular order. Mature saints fellowship with the body of Christ. They don't look down their nose thinking they're better than the rest of the congregation. That is delusional. Number two, mature saints are defined by joy. They're not defined by sorrow. They're not defined by crying. They're not defined by anger. They're not defined by stress. Mature saints are defined by joy. Some Christians, their anger, their bitterness, their stress has trained them. They don't know how to be anything but angry, bitter, or stressed, or sad. Some Christians have been sad for so long, they don't know how to be anything but sad. Ugh, I don't want to be around that. (laughs) Number three, mature believers are defined by their generosity. Freely they receive, freely they give. They give forgiveness, they give grace, they give mercy, they give money, they give time, they give attention. Stingy. Christians are not mature. Number four, mature Christians know how to resist offense and bitterness. They can feel it when it comes on them and they can reject it. When you're a mature saint, you don't get offended by little things. I share this sometimes with our parents. When you're the parent and your five-year-old says something mean or rude, You don't get offended. You discipline them. You understand they're a child and they don't know what they're talking about. Same with us as mature saints. We don't get offended when people do dumb stuff. They don't know what they're talking about. Fifth and final point, mature saints have a home life that demonstrates the kingdom. And maybe the ultimate test of that is if you were to live with them for a week, you'd become a better Christian. 
Maybe that's a good litmus test there, saints. How can I tell if my home life manifests the kingdom? Well, a Christian could come live with you for a week and they would become a better Christian. If a Christian comes to stay with you and they have to pray more every day <laughs> to keep their walk with God and to keep from going crazy, then your home life doesn't demonstrate the kingdom. So there you have it, church. Five marks of maturity. It's not the first Timothy 3 list. It's not the first Corinthians 12 talk about body parts. It's not the Galatians 5 fruit of the spirit or the Titus 1 list of criteria. It's just a good overall observation for what mature Christianity looks like. 